and welcome to Steminist Stories, a podcast celebrating some of the unsung women of science, technology, engineering and maths. I'm Reba, one of your hosts, a massive science nerd with a passion for engineering, space and sustainability. And I'm Nell, an ex-parasitologist and outdoor enthusiast. And I'm Rachel, producer and resident history nerd. Welcome to Steminist Stories. Today we are covering math. Dun dun dun. Everyone's favourite subject at school. So as everyone probably knows, but I'll give a very quick definition. So mathematics is the study of numbers, shapes and patterns. The word mathematics comes from the Greek word mathmia, which I think sounds really cool. It sounds much better than mathematics. Mathmia. (laughs) Sounds like a spell. It does, doesn't it? Like a Harry Potter thing. Yeah, it does. Mathmia. Which means science, knowledge and learning. And there's four main branches of maths, which is quantity, so number theory, structure algebra space which is geometry and change which is analysis so analysis algebra geometry and number theory but if you don't want to sound so mathy then quantity chance space and structure nice so math covers all of that and it's key in kind of every science really isn't it and everyday life i feel like we use a lot more maths than we think we do yeah and i think maths is definitely one of those things that at school they like teach you how to do pythagoras's theorem and stuff and you're like I'm never going to use this again. It'd be nice if they went over interest rates and mortgages and loans, though. Well, exactly. I was like, to be fair, I've never done that. But you do maths in a lot of other ways. It is one of the most kind of ancient disciplines, though, in terms of human knowledge gaining. Yeah, apparently markings on animal bones indicate that humans were doing maths since 30,000 BC. I guess it's like the building blocks of society, really, isn't it? Like, you can't trade or build or do anything without doing maths. Even if you're not, like, calling it maths or learning formulas which is I think what most people think of it as at school. And maths exists a lot in nature doesn't it? You have mathematical codes that appear over and over and like sequences of primes and also animals do maths like I know that a lot of animals will like count their young to check that they're all there it's a very basic idea of maths but you know little tallies counting your babies to check that the whole litter is there is still mathematical thinking yeah is it crows that are the really smart birds yeah crows are dead smart crows do maths and yeah but we see them do tool usage as well I can't remember what uh, bird it is but there's birds that are used in like Southeast Asia that fishermen use oh yeah cormorants I think and they dive and catch the fish and because they know that every fourth fish they're allowed to eat they can count them no and they'll bring up three and then they're allowed to eat the fourth and they have this like symbiotic relationship with the fishermen who obviously look after them and stop them from being prey animals and also allow them to eat fish and so it like benefits both it's really clever yeah i mean you see some really gorgeous photos of that of the birds on like those sticks on the boats with the fishermen and it is just really impressive it is so cool i didn't know that they i didn't know there was like it was the fourth fish that's really impressive or well whatever number the fact that they know okay couple more and i've got my little snack exactly yeah it's really cool i didn't know maths would lead us to talking about birds that's for sure (laughs) if it's the building blocks of everything you end up talking about birds i mean i know that ants calculate distance by counting their steps that's how they know how far away they are from their nest and they can calculate like direction as well by looking at the angle of the path relative to the position of the sun whoa and that's how they know to get back so they're doing like geometry which is really cool and dung beetles navigate by the sun as well isn't it ants and bees who like build their like hives and colonies and like very direct distinct patterns and things that's the thing though i think because because maths is number theory you can kind of apply it to every situation it's like a language for understanding the patterns of nature isn't it god i'm a bit mind blown (laughs) i think what's interesting as well is because it is such an ancient 
I guess like one of the oldest forms of thinking. I said like Pythagoras and all these other people like who were writing maths theories and it was linked to a lot of like philosophy at the time as well. Like they were kind of an interlinked subject. Natural philosophy. Wasn't it called natural philosophy? Like maths and physics was kind of a hybrid together. Which means that for the first time ever, we're going pre-1800s. Woo! How on women existed pre-1800s? Are you sure? I know. And we actually know their names and stuff about them, which is the first. And actually, we're going as far back as 350 AD, which is when our first Steminist was born, Hypatia of Alexandria. And you know it's old when she's of a place rather than just having a last name. (laughs) I want to be of a place. It makes you sound so much more grand. Uh, So she lived in Alexandria, unsurprisingly, which is in Egypt, for those who don't know, which at the time was part of the Eastern Roman Empire. And yes, I think it's really cool that she's a woman that we actually know so much, like from someone so long ago, who actually was involved in a STEM subject. And fun fact, there is a Saint Catherine of Alexandria who is one of the most important saints in the late Middle Ages. And she's assumed to be partly based on Hypatia. So she is the patron saint of students and married girls. So our cool math lady just also happens to be partly sainted. Wow. Do we know anything about how she was educated? Because obviously being... Yeah, so uh, she was the daughter of someone called Theon, um, who was a mathematician and an astronomer. And she was given an education and was actually seen as an early genius and ended up overtaking her teachers. So she comes from a mathematical family and like, yeah, learnt it at home around her dad. And she ended up teaching maths at the Neoplatonic School of Alexandria. And apparently her lecturings were packed with students from all over the world. Her voice was described as divine and she was apparently beautiful and modest and intelligent and everything good personified in a person. <laughs> Which is an extremely excellent legacy to have, I think, as a person. Yeah, it sounds like she's a little goddess. I love as well how in a lot of our other episodes we've been saying, you know, oh, she was the first person to be a female professor in chemistry, the mid-1900s or the early 1900s. And actually it just shows that like society and the patriarchy is cyclic yeah and actually there was a time in ancient history where it was a lot more even and having a woman lecture to an international student body has happened loads of you know years ago so this whole idea of like oh traditionally women should be in the home actually if you want to be really traditional about it should be in lecture theatres in Alexandra (laughs) yeah it's where you want to draw the line of what's traditional Well, I think like a lot of the people we've talked about have been like from the sort of Victorian-ish era. Mm. And there was definitely in Victorian times like a massive retrenchment of sexist ideas of women were becoming more powerful. And so it was like, no, you will go back into the home and you will not leave and take our power. But yeah, if you look at like the Middle Ages and earlier, women were definitely like involved in power. Like in Egypt, obviously when you had the pharaohs, like women could become leaders of the country. This is pre the Roman Empire there. And they weren't really seen as female or masculine. They were often just seen as pharaohs, like God like so they were just treated as different so you, like for centuries we had female leaders inheriting things and then it obviously it got written out in the middle age period back to Hypatia she often talked about scientific and philosophical questions together she wasn't just a mathematician she was also a philosopher and she had these really interesting discussions about how the world works and where everything came from we don't actually have any of her writings left we've only got the titles but she collaborated with a lot of people and you can kind of see her work through them and we also know about some of her work because letters from her people survived and her most important work was about something called conics which is the geometric figures formed when you slice through a cone in a certain direction like an ellipsis after she died people didn't really focus as much on this research but in the start of the 17th century it was when people started looking at orbitals so the paths of objects around another object Mm. so how things orbit in space for example and realised they could use her mathematics to support their analysis of that and understand the paths objects take so her legacy is really long lasting 
That's so good that her maths didn't get destroyed. We still got to use it later on. Yeah, it's good that she was like, like her legacy does exist still and people know who she is, which is pretty rare, I think. But we've also got another woman who is older than we've previously looked at, who was born in 1718 called um, Maria Agnesi, who is Italian and is from like a wealthy Milan family. And there's another woman who was seen as a genius from very her very early age. Apparently by the time she was nine, she could speak Italian, Latin, French, Greek, Hebrew, Spanish, and German. <laughs> was tutored by a university professional in maths when she was just a child and became an expert in maths and philosophy again. Imagine that being your child and you're trying to tell them off and they're just saying stuff back to you in a million different languages. And you're like, what are you saying? What are you saying to me? <laughs> Interestingly, this was during the like the time of the Enlightenment, which is when there was big like philosophical debates happening across the world, and like the idea of like maths and science as um, a way of understanding nature was really big. So she kind of fits into that time period quite nicely. So she wrote like quite a famous collection of essays covering philosophy, logic, mechanics, Newton's theory of gravity. And also, like, as a side note, then added in, like, and women should also be educated. FYI, if you're reading this and enjoying it, please note it was written by a woman. (laughs) (laughs) She also wrote a maths text, um, or two texts, um, including a volume called the Institutioni Analtici. It's a textbook actually aimed at young people and covered, like, calculus and things, which had only recently been invented as a theory. But yeah, she was targeting, like, education at young people and women and trying to get them invested in maths. And the book ended up being widely translated because it was the first of its kind. And the Empress of Austria actually sent her a diamond ring in a <gasps> diamond box as like a thank wow. you for writing this book. Whoa. Which is pretty cool. And they say math doesn't pay. Just make friends with the Austrian Empress and you're good to go. Yeah. Lots of positives, but to go back to the classic women in STEM history, uh, her work was very highly commended. And the French Academy of Science said it was worthy enough for the author to be admitted to the Academy... But they wouldn't let her in as the lords didn't allow women to join. Oh. So they acknowledged that she was good enough, but then went, well, sorry, you're born female, so I guess you're not allowed in. I just don't understand how an academy of mathematics, so an innately logical institution... And that's what I was just thinking. I was like, where is the logic in that from such logical people? Yeah, like literally these people... Sorry, the external case that you live in is not okay for you to do maths. Shut up! Yeah, and it's just... But I think, like, at this time, like, so science and math, instead of being out of universities as in these, like, academies and these societies and groups. Networking, boys clubs. Very boys clubby, very, like, you have to be a certain level of class and a certain gender Mm. and a certain colour and person to be involved. And it's kind of like, it's formalising the sexist and racist and all these other negative classist structures. The death of diversity. Yeah. Compared to like Hypatia who was working this time when it was all about like free thought. That's what I don't understand though is I feel like all the stuff we've learned I just come back to I don't understand why. I don't understand why you'd be so scared of letting women be involved. Because society could have done so much more all those people that were left out just because they're female and I kind of you know we talk about the patriarchy and stuff but I just... Don't understand the logic. How can you be so scared of a woman? It's just power, I guess, isn't it? I mean, I have someone that fits the box really nicely. And she was accepted, probably a lot of people know her, um, white, upper class, pretty. It's a shame that pretty comes up a lot if you're a, a lady that's doing science or anything like this. Is 
you don't really hear he was a handsome scientist um, <laughs> that's so true i have no idea what half of the male scientists i know look like exactly but for some reason it matters whether you're pretty or not if you are a female in stem but anyway florence nightingale so a lot of people know her as the lady with the lamp i remember learning about her in school she was born in 1820 to 1910 she was 90 years old was she yeah yeah she lived for ages good maths <laughs> maybe one of the reasons she's so famous she's just the longest lasting of all the people we've looked at so far (laughs) so known a lot for being the lady with the lamp and looking after injured soldiers and being really caring and that lovely female nurse but um she's also a fantastic mathematician and statistician and it's a shame sometimes that that's the only thing she's kind of remembered for is for being a nurse and this feminine traits but she was also fantastic at maths where she comes in is she was always interested in maths because her parents were quite ahead of their time. Like they were proper political and social movers and they wanted their children to be educated. So they did encourage them to do languages, art, textiles, but also more masculine things such as maths. And Florence was so good that she even went on to tutor her male cousins but her dad urged the male cousins to keep this quiet because they didn't want them to be ridiculed for being taught by a woman. Oh, for God. <laughs> they, <laughs> it sounds a bit weird because it sounds like the dad was encouraging her, but at the same time was feeling the pressure of the social norms during that time to kind of not fully celebrate the fact that his daughter was good at maths. Yeah, and I guess especially for the cousins, it's like you might internally acknowledge that she's better, but if you out loud say, oh no, I'm being taught maths by my cousin, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's a woman, like you're just, like you said, like you're just going to get ridiculed and bullied. That's the key way that society perpetuates it though, isn't it? It uses stigma and shame to keep the norm and that's what it's doing. Yeah, but Florence was very against following the norm, even against the parents, because she got a bunch of marriage proposals, but turned them all down because she was didn't want to have to go into that lifestyle of marrying like she wanted to do um nursing because i think she saw the effects of the crimean war i don't know if rachel you want to shed any light on that war so the crimean war was a war in like the mid 1800s and like you can kind of look at it almost as like a precursor to kind of the world war one type war it was when the ottoman empire was starting to collapse and there was kind of like a power struggle between russia and the united kingdom and france and it was about trying basically trying to get control and power over like some of the ottoman territories under the guise of protecting christian rights in the ottoman empire which was predominantly muslim it like first world war it was one of those wars that was ultimately completely pointless and is incredibly famous for having no purpose but also being horrifically brutal there's a lot of news about like how appalling the conditions were and this is where florence had a massive impact because she was just astounded at the conditions for the sick and the wounded i don't think techniques like swapping rags was going on people were just reusing the same equipment and i guess they didn't really know why the infection was happening all this sort of stuff so when she returned because her parents were quite well connected she was also very well connected when she returned the secretary of state for war lord panmure asked her to write a report on the sanitary requirements for the british army which she did so she wrote this confidential report on the sanitary requirements of the british army it had a lot of data in so she did something that was not done very often and put this data into visual format 
One being, which we should definitely put on an Instagram, a famous kind of pie chart. It's called a rose chart. The rose chart came before the pie chart and it shows the wounds, the preventable disease and other causes of deaths in the army. So it really visually, you can see a lot of this is preventable disease. That's so clever because we talk so much about trying to get very busy people within government and business and wherever to understand data in a very quick way and how can we show complex data in a visual way that people can engage with and understand and also to see relationships and proportion that's so clever yeah and the funny thing is people didn't like it at first this made me laugh when I first read it um one of her colleagues that saw the diagram was super suspicious William Farr and he said statistics should be the driest of all reading and complained that Nightingale's attempts were not sufficiently dry. So he didn't think they were boring enough, basically. He was like, this is too nice to look at. I don't want to look at it. It's like, God forbid we make maths accessible. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's elitist yeah. and they want to keep it elitist and closed because their ego is getting something out of being one of the only ones that can understand something so dry. It's like you get a little kick out of it. Whereas actually the best people are the ones that can explain really complex things really simply so that everyone can understand and engage with it. She was storytelling with data in a way that, like you said, she could show to the ministers, the Secretary of War, and they could make decisions that would have really beneficial impacts on the army and on sanitary conditions. That if she just put a load of numbers in a text, it you know, it wouldn't be that impactful. Oh, so they don't have, have the time to like read through reams and reams of dry text and, you know. I find it so crazy that she's so famous for the Crimean War, but she's so famous in that image of, if you like picture a nurse in like that very old fashioned, like long skirt, little cap in a tent in a war field, tenderly nursing the sick. And that's like the image you get of Florence Nightingale when you picture her, like that's what she's famous for. But then actually she did this, this mathematics and this data representation which saved the lives of so many more people but she's not remembered for her impressive statistical analysis she's remembered for individual nursing I guess it's just like it's a much more palatable female image <laughs> uh, exactly like she just wants to be remembered for the feminine aspects like caring nursing but she managed to prove with statistical evidence that low mortality in hospitals was due to poor conditions so previously people just thought they're dying because they're fighting. And people don't understand about germs. This is before microbiology. And I, I definitely agree with you. It's really reductionist to just say she was just a nurse. I mean, being a nurse is fantastic, but she was so much more data visualizer, reformer, educator, a nurse, a colleague, a sister. Like It's just sad when you box people into one thing when there's so many more layers. And especially at, like at this point of history, like a nurse was seen as someone, it wasn't like you're medically educated necessarily like you are now, like a nurse. Yeah, it was really menial. Like her family didn't want her to do nursing. Because they were like, it, you, you're better than that sort of thing, which is ridiculous. But that just goes to show what the view was of nursing back then. But also, I mean, nursing in the kind of standards of field hospital that she was in is incredibly risky. I mean, we talk about nursing being risky now in COVID. It's a similar thing, you know. They didn't understand how, like, viruses and bacteria spread and how infections spread. And she would have been right there. So it's like, it's a proper life risking thing to do. And in a war, just the risk of being in a war at all, especially when you're someone who's not been trained to use a gun or weapons. She's so innovative though, isn't she? The way that she uses things. is again, I think she's such a prime example of the argument for diversity in STEM because she can come along and be like, oh, why don't we show this statistical report in a visual way? And everyone's like, what? We don't do that. And it's like, no, but we could. Because it's just thinking about it in a different way. 
I think that kind of, that innovation is really important. Yeah, she saved lives with that. Lots of lives. Well, another female mathematician who was incredibly innovative in how she looked at really ancient problems is is Mariam Mazahani, um, who is arguably one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, to be honest. She's a really interesting, amazing woman. So she was born in Tehran, in Iran, in 1977, and said herself that she was very fortunate to come of age after the Iran-Iraq war. So in a time where the political, social and economic environment was stable enough for her to get an education as a woman and for her to be able to focus on her studies safely. So she graduated from university in Tehran and then went to graduate school at Harvard, where she worked underneath someone called Curtis McMullen, who was a Fields Medal winner. So the Fields Medal in mathematics is sort of like the Nobel Prize of maths. It's like oh, okay. the biggest thing it's like it's like the oscar of maths it's like <laughs> the big thing you can get and she was distinguished at harvard by her determination and her relentless questioning and she would question professors in english and then take her notes in farsi wow 2004 she did her phd dissertation which was described as a masterpiece and solves two long-standing problems each of the solutions would have been world news in their own right and she solved them both and apparently it's been described as being truly spectacular. And then she did papers in journals about these uh, problems that she'd solved. So her work kind of described geometry and complex dynamics of curved spheres and donut shapes and amoebas. So it's very theoretical and it uses numbers to understand shapes and interactions within space. Um, But it's got loads of applications So her work can have impacts in our understanding of how the universe came to exist because it can inform quantum field theory. It also can have secondary applications in engineering and material science. And she did a lot with study of prime numbers and cryptography. It's really interesting stuff, but very, very complex, like incredibly complex. She won the Fields Medal in 2014 as the first woman and the first Iranian to do so. I think to this day, she's still the only woman to have won the Fields Medal. Seriously? Really? Mm-hmm. For her outstanding contributions to the dynamics and geometry of Riemann surfaces and Moldi spaces. The award was made to her at an International Congress of Mathematics. She was really, really cool in the way that she did things. So she said that she enjoyed pure maths because of the elegance and longevity of the questions that she studied. So she'd often refer back to like classical ancient texts. I think that's something that's really nice about maths actually as an area is if you look at like fields like biology or physics even our concepts of you know we no longer think that the earth is flat and that the sun revolves around the earth and we, we understand germs and things like fields have moved on quite a lot in certain areas especially like astrology but in maths like some especially some of the equations are so long-standing and so pure like we still use like maths that was just or created in the roman empire in ancient greek times we still use the exact same theories today and the exact same equations. Like they've not become outdated and been replaced by anything. And that's one of the lovely things about it. It's like a universal language that spans history. Yeah. You know, and it's really nice as connections. And that's why it's kind of, it's kind of even more impressive that she's solving these problems because not only are they problems that no one else has solved before, they are problems that people have been working on for millennia. Whereas like a lot of the new discoveries in, in other STEM fields, like engineering and tech and biology, our new discoveries and not things we were aware of before. Yeah, and I think you see that by the fact that we talk about people from such a breadth of history in this episode. Yeah. Whereas before we really have been very modern and especially in technology where we were really like 20th century. 
Yeah, exactly. Do you think there's still space for new maths? Definitely. I think with with quantum computing, there's going to be huge advances in our mathematical ability as a species because we're going to be able to process things so much quicker. I do think maths has come a long way because of computing and just the fact that it doesn't we have to have a human brain doing it we can do it so much quicker mm-hmm. but it's really interesting because she preferred working on large sheets of white paper and would do mathematical drawings in different colors and color code and scribble on these large sheets of paper and her young daughter described her mother's work as painting oh. she used to say that her mother was painting maths that's a beautiful way it's really sweet isn't it and it's 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 lovely actually like someone said of her that she embodied what being a mathematician or a scientist is all about. The attempt to solve a problem that hadn't been solved before or to understand something that hadn't been understood before. This is driven by a deep intellectual curiosity and there is a great joy and satisfaction with every bit of success. Which I think is such a lovely description. And I like I like the description of it as painting because I think, again, with maths, it actually is like a really creative subject. And there's that whole thing, right, about depending on writing uses a different part of your brain or using your hand to like paint or draw uses a different part of your brain than typing does and so the fact that she prefers to work in that way it engages your create the creative part in your brain in a different way and makes you can make you be more creative is like recommended by people sometimes to do that oh i might try that it's so cool isn't it just for context on the fields medal so the fields medal was first awarded in 1936 and is awarded to at least one and sometimes up to four mathematicians every year and she's the only woman mm. to have ever been awarded it. So we're getting close to the 100 year anniversary and she's the only person, woman who's won it ever. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's really sad. She did all this amazing work but um, in 2017 at the age of 40 she died of breast cancer. Oh no. In a hospital in America and one of her colleagues who was um, the president of Stanford University at the time said that she's gone far too soon, but her impact will live on for thousands of women she inspired to pursue maths and science and in the work she did. And she was a great advocate for women in STEM and also did quite a lot of like uh, speaking out about the political situation in her home country. So, because obviously women's education um, in Iran has been harder recently than it was when she was growing up. And again, it's that thing we are talking about, about like the cyclic nature of the patriarchy, that there goes through phases where it's like, yeah, no, of course women can go to school. And there's phases where it's like, no, actually we're going to clamp down and women can't get education at all. And then it comes back again. And this kind of idea of a constant, bit of a constant fight throughout history. But she's really amazing. And she did a lot. And it's nice to have a really recent female mathematician that was looking at historical proofs from our first mathematician. Yeah. In the episode. Yeah. And then was also, did so much. There's always that thing, isn't there, with the patriarchal nature of the stuff of, like discounting women's achievements or talking them talking about them as they're like less impressive where in this case it's she understood these problems that people hadn't understood for centuries and she was just like I'm just pretty smart I'm gonna do it myself yeah and you know broke cultural boundaries and cross language barriers and time barriers and I think it's one of those things as well with mathematics like with Hypatia's work where probably the legacy of the work she's done about geometry and spheres we won't fully understand for another few hundred years. And she's so ahead of her time with it. It's almost like physics needs to catch up. <laughs> I like the fact uh, that every woman on this episode, or nearly every woman, has been described at some point in their lives as a genius. Yeah. 
acknowledging that. They're just all geniuses, basically, <laughs> which is incredibly impressive. And trendsetters as well. It's nice that, you know, even if history does go through the cycles where their work is less recognised, it keeps cropping back up because it's so innovative. Yeah. That's reassuring. Yeah, can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> exactly. Go and go and study those donuts. I think that's um, that's all we've got time for on the maths side of things. But um, next week is actually our final episode. Dun, dun, dun. Of our first series, which is very sad. We shall not cry because we're not emotional women. I will cry, full stop. <laughs> but we're actually going to be looking at the objects and the history, scientific history behind objects. It's going to be very interesting. And we're going to be joined by... The two other women who work on Steminus you've not met yet, Lucy and Izzy. So definitely listen to that. And thank you so much for listening to every other episode. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Steminus Stories. Tune in next week where we'll be listening to more amazing stories from women in STEM. And don't forget to follow us on all our social media channels. Thank you to everyone from our behind the scenes team that makes Steminus Stories possible. Mm-hmm.